All right, so I'll start it off. We're here today with an old friend of ours, Malcolm Harris. He's an author, former editor at New Inquiry, former guerrilla Radiohead promoter. And now you've written this huge book, which is a huge success. Some are saying this year's Dawn of Everything. But I want to start off by asking, how is it being, how is it being received in Palo Alto? Mm, that's a it's a good question so far so good i feel like i've had a like a variety i did the launch you know on the the release day in palo alto's one remaining bookstore that is across the street from both stanford university and the place i went to high school um and that was packed it was really fun it was like you know my elementary school principal came it was a bunch of like people i knew from from growing up, there were there have been a few people who are upset at the idea that Palo Alto isn't sort of like the hippie enclave that they experienced it as growing up in like the second half of the 20th century. So a little like reactive criticism in those terms. And same with my, I guess you could say my use of the, the suicides in Palo Alto, which I tell as part of the story. And... There's been a little bit of a reactive response from Palo Alto, elements within Palo Alto saying like, don't do that, don't don't use our story, don't whatever, work it into your ideological frame. Um, and I have to sort of, remi- I've had to remind people that like, that's my story too. Like I grew up there, uh, those were my classmates. Like you can't lie to me about what happened because I was there, I remember it. But overall it's been Yeah, I mean, I, I've known a lot of people from Palo Alto, in- including you and... Um some of like the the radical people that I've known in the Bay Area and, and punks who I've met in New York. And they they all pretty much have a similar story to you that like Palo Alto, despite its reputation as this sunny, prosperous kind of American utopia, is a very haunted place that everyone mm. seems kind of in a way disturbed to have grown up there. Yeah, and there was this and I didn't get into it in the book because it's not a memoir. It doesn't tell like my story as much. Um but there's been a, like, counterculture within Palo Alto that whole time. And so when you say, like, oh, I know a lot of punks from Palo Alto, a lot of people know a lot of punks from Palo Alto. And, like, Palo Alto yeah. had a non-insignificant role in, the, like, anti-war movement uh, in the early 2000s in the Bay Area. And, like, people who participated in that had a non-insignificant role in the rise of the tuition protests at the UCs. And that turned into Occupy. Um So which we are all alumni. Yeah. And so people like people who know, know that like the the radical community within Palo Alto, and I'm not talking about like myself, I'm talking about a large group of people has been curiously involved in in radical politics in the 21st century, but also not just in the 21st century. And I detail in the book that this goes back to like the 19th century and that Palo Alto has always produce this radical community. And I hope that's still happening. I don't know that it is necessarily still happening, but, uh, do you feel as though it's cruel to release this book and rub salt in the wounds of the poor, uh, Silicon Valley bank investors and the VC people and the startup people there in Silicon Valley as they're lying prostrate on the floor, you know, having <laughs> right? just seen billions of their of dollars wiped out. I mean, this is a tough time to be releasing this book yeah. for that community. I'm really kicking them all there down, um, in some ways, uh, yeah, when <laughs> as it's come out, people have kept saying like, "Oh, wow, what great timing! Really lucky timing." But they've said that about like four different things happening, right? <laughs> so it's been like lucky timing, like every couple months. 
the whole time. But the the point of that really is that, and one of the reasons why I think your book is so powerful is because, of course, Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, Alto has been a central part, not just of uh, the uh, like American capitalism over the last 100, 150 years, but also to the narrative that Americans and American capitalists, the American ruling class, tells itself uh, about the prosperity and about the possibility of American life. And your book does such a great job of puncturing that and showing the real stories, the real characters, the real massive global forces uh, that actually brought this particular part of the country into the fore in so much. And now is maybe, and we'll get to this by the end of the episode, a kind of leading indicator of the limits of, of American capitalism. An empire. Yeah, I think so. And I think Palo Alto really like <clears throat> periodizes this whole era, right? That it, we see that the towns start in the 1870s with the this establishment of modern United States um, and running into some like some real limits right now. I think I think you're right to say that. It covers so much in the book. I mean, starting with colonization, railroads, eugenics, Stanford, military contractors, hardcore punk and the dot com boom. But I've noticed a lot of readers had a similar experience to me and maybe to you writing the book is that you you of uh, just becoming fixated on this singular figure of Herbert Hoover who played a big role in the creation of what we might understand as the California economic model. I think you also call it the uh, the associative state mm-hmm. at some point. The Palo Alto system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- these are all si- not the same thing but similar things mm-hmm. that like the, the vision of Hoover seems to play this kind of locus of, of all of these things. Um, did you think of Hoover as a protagonist when you started writing the book, or did that just kind of occur to you through your research? <clears throat> yeah, not at all. Uh, when, I, when I started, I had no plan to write about any American president at length. You know, It was not supposed to be that kind of history. I wasn't supposed to go on for like dozens of pages in a biography of a early 20th century American president. Like, who cares? There are, that's all the history books. Like, you don't need another one about that. This is a counter history. I'm going to be telling it from the untold stories or whatever. And then I get reading and the more and more I read, the more and more I was like, Herbert Hoover is the most important person in the 20th century and no one understands this. And <laughs> that I need to like, <laughs> no matter what I was talking about, especially around Palo Alto, you could just trace it right back to Herbert Hoover, that he is, he really is Leland Stanford Jr. You know, he's the member of the first class of this university in 1891, he becomes president of the United States and not just president of the United States, like his role globally is is bigger than that even, right? He's a... a uh, like super imperialist figure from his first days as a adult outside of the campus. Uh, and just this amazing collection of historical forces that doesn't stop until the mid sixties, right? He like makes an endorsement in the 1964 primary. Uh, that's crazy. Like we think about his story ending in 1932 with the depression and losing to Roosevelt, but there's decades more where he's really setting up the infrastructure for the Cold War and for American anti-communism in the second half of the 21st, 20th century and into the 21st century. And looking back now, as I was doing with this book, the story that like Roosevelt beats Hoover is the the narrative of the American 20th century seems just totally wrong and opposite that like Hoover really, you know, after taking a a tough beating in the first half against uh, Roosevelt really comes back strong and that we're really living in a, in a Hooverite world 
<clears throat> and so this became a a real through line for the book. Um, and again, past his death, even in the 60s and into the Hoover Institution and the like backroom deals that are being made under his name, even after his death. And like, you know, or even like the involvement of his son in uh, supporting the Shah in Iran, <laughs> that he was like mm. a, a like main diplomatic figure in supporting the Shah, Herbert Hoover Jr., um, but there was no tie-in to Maximum Rock and Roll, which is a little with the Hoovers. I mean, you could you could go yeah. for. It. I mean, Maximum Rock and Roll was one of those California communist publications that knew about Hoover, right? That could like trace the lines oh. and that knew about Bechtel and that could remember. And you got to think, like at that time, we're only talking thirty-four years in the past to get to the thirties, right? Like it's not that far if we think about it right now. That would be the equivalent of us thinking about the 80s, right? The equi- and like what happened in the 80s um, would be them thinking about what's happening in the pre-war period. So it's not like they had to remember right. that far back to have some sort of knowledge of the Hoover era and like the machinations that underlie the, the American post-war order. Uh, and they did that work. So there is a link, I think. They were part of the like counter-Hoover elements. And you could draw them even back to like the communist party in the West coast that faced off at the Hoover farm with guns, you know? So there are two sides for the, for, for the people who haven't had a chance to pick up the book yet. And they should, cause it is, uh, it's fair to say a tour de force. I'm going to call it a tour de force. Uh, great book. The, um, talk a little bit about who Hoover was, this intersection of, um, capital, capital and the state, uh, and also describe what Hooverism becomes and what it is and and the, the long sort of effect it has on american life great i'll just do that that'll be the rest of the podcast i'll just uh <laughs> yeah i'll pot it because <laughs> i really could you know um because he's in the end of the 19th century he's this quaker orphan kid and his dad had run a his parents had run a, a agricultural implements shop in the midwest and we think of that as like ye old whatever shop but it wasn't it was like a a gadget shop almost right because the the agricultural instruments are the cutting edge of technology in the west at the time and so hoover's dad is like jesse hoover is the first guy to bring barbed wire to the area he's got the first barbed wire machine in the region and so he's a real like innovator of the west uh But even for those such guys, right, who held the promise of America in their hands, mortality was really high. And so Hoover's parents die of illness. They get sick and die. Um, And he's left as an orphan and he goes out to the the West Coast to stay with some family where he grows up um, relatively, you know, pioneer class, right? There's a guy who's looking at California in the West and thinking about, I can make something of myself. And one of the things he does to do that is he goes to this new school that's starting on the West Coast called Leland Stanford Junior University. He enrolls as part of the first class in this school, which is free and co-ed, um, very modern institution. It's like if Elon Musk, you know, decided to like set up his new college or whatever today, oh. like going to the new like rich guy's college. But it's free and they're offering the like <clears throat> most advanced kinds of uh, tech study. And at that time... Such a subject was mining engineering. That was the equivalent of being like, oh, I'm going to go study AI at Musk U. 
is like, I'm going to go study mining engineering at Leland Stanford Junior University. And there at Stanford, Hoover becomes one of the really standout members of this first class. And it's not because he's so smart. He's a little like behind academically, in fact. Uh, it's not because he's like super athletic, which is very important at the time. He's like a middling shortstop for the, the baseball team, which isn't very good. And he, uh, but what he's really good is management and organizing guys. And so he becomes sort of the, the athletics manager for the school, which is a very important job. You're handling like piles of gold, literal piles of gold on behalf of other students. And he becomes this very like trustworthy guy that the administration really takes a liking to. They're like, this is, this is a Stanford man. This is who we want to put forward as a representative of our school. Um, there's this great quote from his, his, uh, one of his professors who hears some other students complaining that like Hoover gets too much special attention. He's like, you guys need to shut up. If I told Hoover, Herbert Hoover to go find Bert, they called him Bert. If I told Bert to go find me a walrus truth from Kamchatka, I wouldn't hear about it until he came back. It wouldn't hear about it again until he came back with the tooth. And like, that's what they really needed from people at the time from, you know, go getting men of the late 19th century was like go get yeah, because go get stuff done. Yeah, what was a Stanford man except uh, an initiate into like a new American ruling class that's based around management principles and efficiency and productivity uh, and engineering with a real eye towards profit making and imperialism, right? And so the, the idea of going somewhere and pulling something back, right? Like that, that was literally what he had to do. And so when he graduates, he gets. Um, escalatingly good jobs doing mining engineering and consulting where he goes in and as this college guy says here's how you need to run this mine to make it more efficient and so he starts in the west coast uh, or the west area of the united states which is still being colonized he's in peru he's in south africa he's in western australia he's in myanmar he's in russia he's in china you know anywhere where the european powers are trying to pull resources out of the ground which is so much of the world at this period right this is part of the scramble for colonial possessions throughout the world um for the purposes of this kind of resource extraction imperialism and Hoover is the California engineer that they go hire to go make these processes more efficient. And partly that's from the, you know, mining technology tools that he's learned uh, in California at Stanford that he's putting to bear in these mines. You know, he's replacing folk wisdom with uh, scientific uh, mining processes, right, with the engineering as a college subject, which is different than the way miners have done it in the past. Um, so that's one thing, but he's also, in addition to this sort of like, uh, scientific rationalization, doing a kind of business rationalization where he's pushing wages down, where he says, you know, I know how to control workers and how do you make, uh, mining labor more efficient. If you push down wages, that's just as good as anything else, right? <laughs> that's just as good as a new technology for analyzing, uh, mine tailings that make you allow that allow you to like pull value out of mine tailings. Like being able to push down wages is just as good as any of that. And in some places more important. And that he's a expert at this. That's part of also what he learns in California. And so he's going around the world, uh, you know, breaking labor organizations, uh, bringing in uh, 
racialized groups of workers and splitting workers into these racialized groups. When he's in South Africa, he's like, I know how to improve our labor situation. You get a bunch of guys in from China. I know some, I got some friends, labor contracting friends in China. We'll bring in a bunch of Chinese workers into South Africa. Uh, he was on the front lines of the Boxer Rebellion. He's on the front. He's yeah. literally on the front lines of the Boxer Rebellion, hiding behind sandbags as the anti-imperialists, uh, you know, try to kick out all the the Europeans and their, you know, American hirelings, which is really who Hoover is. And so, he's on the front lines of this imperialism, and being on the front lines of this imperialism also means being on the front lines of anti-imperialism. And so he's encountering this as a um, the anti-colonial movement and what becomes the global communist movement. He's encountering them as like personal attacks on his well-being, his health and well-being, as well as his property. Because very quickly he goes from being someone who's you know the hired analyst, the McKinsey guy who comes in and is going to help you like fix your mind. To being a like stock trader, to being a speculator on these mines, and he moves from the mines themselves to sitting in an office in London, you know, traveling between London and Brussels and whatever, um, trading paper on these mines, and he becomes a like stock speculator in the same way that a lot of uh, tech people become st- stock speculators over time, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's what sets the stage for him to be involved in World War I, which is what happens next, is that he's this sort of representative of super imperialism where he is, uh, you know, collating all these European claims, imperialist claims to all these mining properties um, and spinning up new companies and spinning up, uh, you know, stock uh, issuance on particular mines and valuing them and... uh, over time, he starts to make much more of his money from these finance activities than from mining itself, uh, which is another thing that will be echoed later in the, in the 21st century, mm-hmm. certainly. Uh, but just to basically at the time where he's going to have to face his new reputation, right, where this idea of the, the wonderkind uh, mine analyst is fading away and people are starting to see sort of like a speculator, schemer, stock jobber type. Um, the crisis of World War One kicks off in Europe, and he's uh, in a really important place relative to America in Europe uh, as a like leading citizen of the United States in London. And he helps funnel Americans out of the continent of Europe onto ships and back home. And he gets credit for being like a you know talented businessman who's able to do this accomplish and philanthropist that he and his friends his rich friends are able to get everybody home without any cost to the american government that they're so efficient that they were able to uh, use finance to get people to pay for it themselves basically Um, and that that's this makes his reputation as a manager but what he really does the way they do it and he gets like a bunch of like oxford students basically like guys he knows from stanford and then some like you know uh, Marshall, not Marshall scholarships, uh, Rhodes Scholars or whatever, you know, whatever, like guys at um, uh, the Oxbridge universities and American college guys, which is the kind of guys he knows, to set up a credit ratings bureau in London for people who are trying to escape the continent. And so they break people up, they assign people credit ratings based on how much money they seem to have. And if you had really good credit, 
they would just take whatever your, or if they determined that you had good credit, then they would take your paper instruments from whatever your local bank is, you know, I'll write you a check from my local bank of Omaha and you'll give me cash right now. So he and his friends borrowed a bunch of money from their bankers and then dispensed it to these, what they saw as credit worthy Americans based on their credit worthiness in exchange for their local instruments. If you weren't, if they determined you weren't credit worthy, um, then they would call and you'd have to have some relative like wire the money directly into their accounts in the United States in order to get their uh, access to this money. And if you determined that you weren't credit worthy at all and you didn't have anybody who could get the cash ready, then you just had to wait for the American gold to show up and the American government to get you out. And so in the face of this really like leveling catastrophe where everyone's in the same boat, so to speak, right? We all need to get out of Europe. None of us really have the cash to do it in our hands. Uh, they reinsert this sort of leveling hierarchy, even in this moment of chaos, uh, which appears as a kind of efficiency to the system, right? And so Herbert Hoover gets uh, exalted as this wonderful philanthropist, even though he never spent a dime, right? And the whole thing was about mm. how, not having to spend a dime. Uh, but it's such a it's such an important anecdote there because I think it really shows the way that the American state or the American system, I guess you could call it. Um, back then and today loves a way for there to be like an efficient, quote unquote, self-organized way to take the onus off of the state, off of the government uh, in order to do all sorts of functions, you know, necessary to keep the system going. Um, that what that often redounds to is like parasitic or self-interested capitalists, uh, individual capitalists or consultants or whatever allowing themselves to like take over these important roles and use them in order to push their own interests forward. Very American story. And today it's the private public partnership and all sorts of various other sort of semi-parasitical rentier type relationships and organizations. And this is a solution to the problem of like the leveling function of crisis, right? And so if people know the Rebecca Solnit book, A Paradise Built in Hell, great book about like how people respond in uh, catastrophes and it has this leveling effect that the like social hierarchies tend to melt away and people uh, are able to self-organize in this sort of like anarcho-communist way um, to meet their common needs. And what we see Hoover doing constantly is protecting against that at a time of crisis, coming in and mm -hmm. reinserting hierarchy and protecting hierarchy and making sure that these crises don't have a leveling effect. And so the next stage, you know, after he succeeds in getting the Americans out and he looks like the kind of guy who can get things done, even at a time of crisis and like uh, polarization, that he's someone who can figure stuff out still. And American, it's important to remember that America is not yet in the war. And so the Americans are, you know, a neutral party, so to speak, like uh, at least somewhat. And so his buddies in, in Belgium, where he'd been doing a lot of work because the, the Belgian crown had a lot of money to invest in imperialism. People know like King Leopold, famous imperialist. Hoover was helping the, the crown in do that imperialism. Uh, but now they've been overrun by the Germans. And the, the Belgian ruling class needs help separating themselves, basically, not just getting food, 
but getting food in a way that allows them to maintain their social status re, uh, regarding the rest of the population. And so they re reach out to Hoover and says, can you work out something? You know, we're blockaded. The Allies have the continent blockaded. They're starving them intentionally. Um, and so they're saying, if you, can you help us out with the Germans? Can you convince the Germans to, like, let some food in for us or figure out some system? Uh, and he does. He's able to negotiate it. You know, Hoover and his food relief teams are the only ones who are allowed to cross the border during World War I. So in that way, they really are this embodiment of super imperialism, which was supposed to prevent the world war from happening in the first place, mm -hmm. right? The idea was the ruling classes of the world are so aligned that they'll, they'll never let their countries fight a war with each other. Um, and that ended up being false because they did fight a war with each other, obviously. But it still was true to a certain degree. And Herbert Hoover really embodied the truth of that, that he could cross into Germany for the purpose of bringing food into the Belgian shops, not in an equalizing way, uh, but so that the rich people basically didn't no longer had to wait in food lines. They could go to the store and spend money to buy food again. Um, basically, it was the same. It was the exact same model as the getting people out of the country model. One of the kind of incredible claims that come out of this is that the result of American soldiers coming back with an appreciation for canned food and candy as part of this model of, of, of selling California products like grapes turning into raisins, you know, processing food in a way that it'll last and will be able to, to resell it, it. It makes me wonder if Hoover's behind the entire model of food consumption that we have in the United States that's spread throughout the world. I don't know if it's an exaggeration, but not, it's kind of like how it's spelled not out. Not much of an exaggeration because once the Americans get into the war, right, because then America enters World War I and Hoover's set up to be like, look, let me be the food guy. I'm going to be the guy who's in charge of, you know, feeding uh, our troops in Europe. I'm, I've been doing all this, uh, like, food transport stuff. And the way that he'd been doing that is because he knew a lot of people in, uh, you know, California agribusiness, which was the advanced wing of the, the canning trade, right? And so the, the canners and packagers were part of his crew, the like a dollar a year men is what they were called, right? And he really develops and invents this designation where you get industry guys coming in and doing quote unquote like state work for quote unquote no pay, but they are also acting as contractors for that the uh, state policies. And so you had you had to change the food system to feed Americans who are on a different continent. And Hoover's really behind that, and it's the canners and the packagers um, who set up that system, and they're able to get really high margins because the Hoover with his and his buddies within the, the canners and the packagers set these really high margins for on state policy for you know how much they're going to be able to charge, and they're aware of this. And I quote some like canners and packagers writing in their newspapers, being like. You know, we should get as much margin as we can during these years, built up as much, you know, structures we can based on these government policies. And they do to the degree that when the war ends, they've created a whole different kind of food system. They've created this really like shipping and canning and packaging food system that's no longer based on, you know, local farmers and getting stuff around you, but it's based on packaging and uh, nu nutritional supplementation and all this stuff that products of research in the California agro world. Um, 
And so it's not a coincidence that that then becomes the American food system is based off this, mm-hmm. uh, the like canned and packaged food directly as, after this area, right? That that's a, a direct consequence of World War I um, because you built up all this infrastructure and they can keep selling it. And they built up this idea that, and so they turned around and spent all their, a bunch of that money on advertising and selling this new food system that they had already sunk all this cash into. Um, and they were able to sort of characterize the local food systems of the previous era as insufficiently nutritious, right? Like unhealthy. If you didn't get it in a can, how can you know it's safe? Uh, and that's in some ways still the food system that we're dealing with now. And we're trying to like now relearn the idea that actually food is much more healthy for you if it's not canned and packaged and processed, um, and if it is from your local food system and that this has been a hundred years of lies, uh, but you can absolutely draw it back to, to Herbert Hoover, who went by the food dictator at the time mm-hmm. when the American food system transitioned from one to the other. Uh, but again, like I always little knew credit. there was something sinister about the California raisins. And I just couldn't, <laughs> I didn't know what it was until I read this. Book. Yeah, you heard it through the grapevine. Man. Well, it's the. The Sun Made Cartel is a serious organization um, that's funded by the what becomes the Bank of America, and they cartelize the the industry, and that means not only coming up with the the little red box, uh, you know, that is stands for raisins, and the like collective advertising and branding that come with Sun Made and California raisins. Like this is a cartel. This is a an organization. Um, but also intimidating individual producers that didn't want to join the cartel, right? If you don't want to send your raisins to to, to SunMade, then they might come by and burn down your house. And that, that was real shit. And the federal government, like, investigated them. And there's this great line where the investigator quotes some local farmer calling them uh, the SunMade cartel is the Raisin KKK, because they would come by and these were Armenian immigrants largely who were the independent producers that didn't want to join the, the sun made cartel and they would send night riders and burn down your house. Um, Jesus. It's scary as shit. Yes. Like, and it's like, and when we think of the cartel, like the cocaine cartel or whatever, we don't think of what that structure actually is, which is the centralization of a bunch of like ostensibly independent farmers um, and the like collective processing, marketing, shipping, and branding of their shared product. And so you see advertisements for like, you know, California raisins, Florida orange juice, pistachios. You know, you see the brands like pistachios. And you're like, why is there why is there an advertisement just like for pistachios? Like, who is behind this? What is going on? Uh, that's the cartel. And whenever you see any of those those ads or whatever, you should think cartel because uh, that's what it is. Cartel with a K with three Ks. Yeah, right? Like yeah. legit. Cartel. It had to be created. And, fi- and again, financed directly by uh, the Bank of Italy, which becomes the Bank of America and is backing these uh, cartel organizations, financing their operations, including the people you got to pay the – guys to go burn people's houses down um, in the same way that we think of criminal or cartel organizations today that are agricultural cartels based on, you know, representing a certain agricultural product out of a certain region. That's exactly what these were. And they used some of the same uh, strategies and tactics. 
And and the cartelization of the of the agricultural industry is also, of course, part of a larger process of combination and concentration of capital. Hoover isn't merely just a free marketeer, right? There was a sort of management, sort of like world-spanning conception of ways uh, to manage competition, ways to bring efficiencies to organizations, a kind of like bizarre uh, capital P progressivism alongside uh, this sort of like free marketeer uh, rhetoric. Like where does Hoover uh, meet the larger sort of streams of American politics when he finally does become president in the 1920s? Yeah, well, he has a hard time doing that because when he comes back to the United States in the 20s um, for the 22 election, basically, uh, is that true? No, the, the 1920 election, excuse me. I got to make sure I get all the elections right. Um, he hasn't spent very much time in the United States, right? He's been living in London. He's been living around the world. He's a representative of American capital, and he knows American capital very well, um, especially in its place in the newly important world, right? Uh, but in terms of domestic politics and, like, the area, he isn't, really hasn't lived there since he was in his early 20s, Um and so when they ask him, you know, what poli- what party are you in even? Like, are you a Democrat or a Republican? He says, I'm a liberal. And it's, and it's very funny because people, I think, like, even into the 21st century, that's a line for conservatives to talk about their politics outside the, like, political binary that has been established a little bit. To say, like, I'm a classical liberal. And Hoover was really, like, the first guy to do that in a sort of American conservative politics context, I think. Uh, and some people... He was like the Andrew Yang of his time. Well, and some people suggest it's because he, like, didn't know that there wasn't a liberal party, because in the UK there is was a liberal <laughs> party, and that he, like, misspoke or whatever, or was just confused. But really his line to the Democrats and the Republicans, he thought of himself as such a, you know, inspiring bipartisan figure was... You know, I'm the food dictator. I, I won. I'm the only one who comes out of World War One looking good. Basically, uh, I'll run for whichever party wants to make me president. Democrats want to nominate me. I'll run for the Democrats. Republicans want to nominate me. I'll run for Democrats. Doesn't matter. The important thing is. So maybe he's more the Bloomberg than the Andrew like Yang. legit. He's very much like Bloomberg. Um, it was like you know the important thing is Herbert Hoover be president. It, it doesn't matter whether it, which party it is. That's not the important part. Um, but the parties are very like top-down, controlled institutions at this point, and neither one took particularly kindly uh, to this ploy, and neither one ends up nominating him for president. Uh, you didn't have the same primary system. If they did, maybe he would have won, uh, but that's not how it ends up working. Uh, but the Republicans still feel compelled to bring him into the government because he is this national figure, very independent um, There's been a lot of advertising with the Food Administration that he was associated with. Um, so he's an important national figure. And so they bring him in and they offer him this new department, cabinet level department called the Department of Commerce, starting in 1920. And so Hoover takes over the Department of Commerce and for the, its first eight years, the first two terms before he becomes president, uh, he runs the Department of Commerce. And as the head of the Department of Commerce, He's really trying to remake the government in this associational image uh, that he had developed in his work in the previous decades, which is like you get a lot of the capitalists who are the important players in whatever industry you're trying to figure out. 
and you get them together and you figure out how the government can support them all collectively through like collective standards. So the, the, you know, Department of Bureau and the Bureau of, uh, of Measures and Standards gets put, brought into commerce because that's something that the Commerce Department can do to help uh, industry writ large is establish like common standards. Um, brings aviation under the Department of Commerce because, again, he wants to, he can boost the, uh, the industry itself um, through this department. And he's constantly just like whatever he can get his hands on um, that makes sense that he can reorganize, uh, he's bringing into the Department of, uh, of Commerce. And so he's really turning the commerce into the government itself as far as Herbert Hoover is concerned about how it should run. And he does this through, through two, uh, two terms, two Republican administrations before he himself is uh, elected president. But by the time he gets into the presidency, he's really developed his like politics and his idea of how administration should run. And they call this uh, the associative model. And I think that model, that politics, is still what these Silicon Valley pop, uh, capitalists believe. That's still their politics. They just don't know how to talk about it anymore. One of the, one of the great sort of narrative arcs of the book is is organization, like specifically the organization of capitalists in California, whether it's the Associated Farmers or the sort of more ideologues that come out of Stanford or the the homeowners associations of the 60s and onwards. And of course, they're constantly confronting organizations of workers and tenants and indigenous people. And so, yeah, but part of the story of California is, is the, the organization of classes essentially fighting each other. And I think this, uh, in a way, this sort of leads to a, a place that's familiar to, to me and certainly to you, which is the, the Hoover Institute in Stanford, which is, you know, I, I don't know if it's the tallest building on the Stanford campus, but it's the most iconic, the sort of phallic domed tower in the middle of the campus where I went to research American Trotskyism mm -hmm. uh, for my book about Posadism. And I was sitting next to people reading texts from like the KMT. They have like yeah. the, the major archive of the KMT mm. there. So yeah, how does Hoover go from being this figure of like expanding markets across the United States and worldwide to being this kind of figurehead for anti-communist intellectual study. Yeah, so it's important to understand that the Hoover Institution is founded twice. So it's founded first as the Hoover War Library, which in... The Class War Library. Yeah, so well, first it's <laughs> founded as just like, here are some documents. So when Hoover is like going around the world doing his super imperialism, he's also accumulating tons of really interesting paperwork. Uh, and... and uh, records of things that are happening of, of this period um, through his administration. And as he keeps going, as he transfers from being like a global financier to being an, a representative of American power throughout the world or an American interest throughout the world, still constantly accumulating all of these records. And he starts sending them back to Stanford University along with some money to set up a new library to house them. Uh, and this includes some of the finest record collection of the Bolshevik Revolution anywhere in the world. Uh, and Hoover's guys are, and Hoover himself, as well as his team, are sending them back uh, to Stanford. And so that's the, the Hoover War Library of the, the World War I period um, 
accumulates just amazing, amazing historical documents uh, from the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. But then he experiences uh, these historical tensions a little bit more personally uh, as the anti-colonial movement and the world communist movement coalesce and build. And so these uprisings that start popping off all around the world where they start seizing mines, uh, though he considers those his mines, like literally. And mm -hmm. so when the Bolshevik, you know, this is a very personal struggle. for Absolutely. Him. And so the Bolshevik revolution, uh, you know, he's working on a copper mine with a, a minor uh, Romanov royal. The Romanov royal barely gets out with his life. You know, he becomes a racetrack guard a dog racetrack guard in Shanghai, which I think is pretty funny. Womp, womp, Yeah, womp. right? Real womp, womp. <laughs> and so Hoover's seeing uh, the dispossession of, like, his buddies through this movement of expropriation, and it's horrifying to him. This is, like, the worst thing that could be happening. Um, and he's president of the United States, uh, you know, starting in 28, and, again, things are going badly. He's experiencing these conflicts... Um, these class conflicts, worldwide class conflicts, as an attack on him and his friends, right? Like, that's the downside of the associational model when you say, like, oh, who's going to run the world? Well, me and my friends on the basis of being me and my friends. But then when people uh, attack the rulers of the world, right, if they attack the status quo or the system as it exists, they're attacking, you know, me and my friends, and that's mm. how they experience this this period, and this culminates in the bonus march, where during the depression, where the uh, group of soldiers, World War One veterans, march on the White House with the idea that we're going to get uh, bonuses that are owed to us a little bit early because we're broke and we need our cash. And even though that's a very American thing, you know, right? <laughs> it's like we're soldiers and we want our bonus early. Uh, what Hoover sees is the storming of the Winter Palace, right? He's like, this is, it's here. It's happening. Like, this is it. They're poor soldiers. The Russians were poor soldiers, you know? Like, this is the Bolshevik Revolution. Would have been cool if true. Yeah. But it, and it wasn't. And, and it's funny when you look at, like, what Moscow was saying was, like, our, our agents suck. Like, they haven't taken control of this bonus march at all. <laughs> like, they were really, like, bummed. The Soviets were like, <laughs> you know, this should be our movement, but it is not. It's just some angry American soldiers. Uh but it really goes to show how um, the Bolshevik Revolution deranged, you know, yeah. the ruling classes around the world that they could see Reds under every bed. Uh, you know, well after the Red Scare, uh, the Palmer Raids, when much of the American communists and socialists and anarchist movement was uh, deported or jailed and taken out of power. Absolutely. And so Hoover has his... Uh has his guys uh, open up on him, right? And so they bomb the camp, they firebomb the camp uh, and tear gas, uh, they use, you know, whatever advanced munitions they have as well as tanks on this, you know. They live stuff. Yeah, really. It, it does look like, they, and then we have footage, you know, we know what it looks like, which is insane. Um, and we have, uh, and it's MacArthur is leading the, the troops, you know, an, an mm. important American anti-communist figure. Uh, and so they were... A man who almost had us nuke uh, China in the 1950s, uh, who, given his druthers, would have uh, nuked much of Southeast Asia. And really a Hoover 
a, a guy, you know, one of mm. one of the top crew of Hooverites, um, which comes in important later because he plays a really important role in the in the post-war order as well in the occupation of uh, Japan and other Pacific territories. Uh, but they they end up shooting themselves in the foot politically because they firebomb these American soldiers and it looks really, you know, FDR and his team are watching this happen and they're like, yeah, he's done. Hoover is cooked and this ends up being true, right? And so we have this narrative of Hoover gets so obsessed with communists and taking the communist uprising personally, right? The communist movement, very personal and seeing this as the the enemy of him and his friends uh, and getting knocked out of power as a result. And Roosevelt coming in and having a different orientation, right? Recognizing the Soviets quickly and teaming up with them and becoming their allies. Uh, Hoover sees this and sees like, all right, this is all one thing, right? Any sort of social democracy is the same as communism. They're all against me. and we have to combat Rooseveltism as well as communism. And if we don't, uh, we're going to lose it all. And this was not a very popular position among capitalists, even in the days of the New Deal, where capitalists saw themselves teaming up with the state and with social democracy in their own interest, right? Like the New Deal was still directed by capital. Um, and so the like hardline anti-social democracy right wing lost a lot of its uh, support even at the high levels of capital, right? If you're looking at like the Hearsts or the DuPonts or, you know, the families that then become very important for the, the reaction to this era abandon Hoover. And he takes that very personally as well. And so the second to go back to this, the Hoover Institution, the second foundation of the Hoover Institution comes in this period where he needs to build a, a citadel of anti-communism somewhere where he knew that people would always support him because Stanford always supported him even through this whole period uh, because he was still a, still a Stanford man, the Stanford man more than anyone. Uh, and so he builds this Hoover Institution that's, you know, combined uh, with the war library uh, structurally, but has a very different purpose. And that's explicitly to fight communism in the world. And that's the Hoover Institution that we know, that most people know in terms of its uh, political function, though people still use the war library for the research that you're talking about, right? Right. And then uh, besides just like the the political function of having these archives and using them in a certain way there's also this implication that uh inscribed in the emerging tech industry of silicon valley is still the eugenics of stanford the anti-communism of hoover the the hooverite vision of of markets um so it it, i mean it gives a a very different flavor to the concept of um silicon valley ideology or techno optimism this idea that like well this technology is developing at such a point that at some point maybe it can become liberatory or communist. Uh, I, I come away from the book with the impression that anything Silicon Valley builds will be uh, used against the working class, essentially. Um, maybe that's too pessimistic a reading. No, I, I think that's we have to look at what 
Palo Alto and what Silicon Valley is historically. And I think that was the, the project of the book. And rather than seeing it as this sort of uh, unfolding of universal history through, you know, making more transistors close to each other, which is how we often talk about the, the industry uh, and like imply its role in human history. Uh, we've got to look at it like the geopolitical history of the 20th century, right? What did America need from Palo Alto that made it such a compelling place to, to lead the country and lead like international structures, right? Uh, what was the, the problematic that it was asked to solve? And the conclusion I come to basically is that if you look at a hundred years ago and you say, how are we going to maintain the inequalities that structure the world at the beginning of the 20th century? Uh, that's a really tough one, right? Like period. They're looking at the anti-colonial uh, movement. They're looking at global communism and the idea that the inherited privileges of white people, of Europeans, of Anglo-Americans, could be maintained for another hundred years was totally implausible. Like that was, uh, how would you do that? You had to invent not just like tools to oppress the majority of the world, but like new stories about why that was okay because liberalism wasn't going to hack it. The fascinating thing about this book is that we haven't even, you know, we've been talking about Hoover and we've been talking about the early 20th century and into the present period. The, the roots of, um, this, of this entire like worldview and ideology and political and economic practice go all the way back to the mid 19th century. Like there's a real through line that you draw beautifully in this book between, uh, the discovery of gold. Well, of course, the defeat of, uh, Mexico and the Mexican American war. The rush of Anglo's coming in uh, with uh, the gold deposits found in '49, and then this this like massive wave of um, settler colonial capitalist activity that makes Palo Alto and Silicon Valley like this real hotbed uh, in of like what America will become, not just ideologically but also economically. And it really like we talk about people talk about settler colonialism in the abstract, mm -hmm. but your book makes very very clear that. The removal of peoples, the massacres of peoples, the dispossessions of people were at the heart of the California dream from the very beginning. Like the conception of independence or virtue for the for the yeoman or the small shopkeeper ne necessitates a certain uh, violence, you know, which born in California in this period ends up racking American history up until this day. And it's so recent. And we think about, you know, we have a hard time thinking about the Anglo-American colonization of Alta California in its proper context because we want to include it in some kind of single narrative about American colonization, you know, United States colonization of North America. And which is a, you know, story that starts in many hundreds of years before my book starts, right? Which is in the mid 19th century. Uh, and like the massacres that are going on to clear the land of Alta California and make it safe for U.S. colonization are going on during the Civil War, right? These are like 1860s, 1870s, this stuff's still happening. Um, that's the foundational violence for the American state. And we would much rather push it back into the Spanish period. And so if you watch something like Zorro, uh, 
Zorro's been rewritten as a story to happen during the Spanish period uh, as a story of like Spanish oppression of the indigenous people and uh, exploitation of the land. But the, the story that it's based on is during the California period, right? And it, it's about the Anglo-American dispossession of indigenous people of California. And we want to just push that onto somebody else's bill. Uh, and part of the goal of this book was to tell a coherent, you know, steady story from this mid-19th century colonization through to today that doesn't take any leaps, right? Because I think if you look at most of the histories of Palo Alto in the area, most of them are about the tech industry. And if they want to talk about the 19th century or the gold rush or even the early radio age, they're doing it in sort of a metaphorical way where they're like, you know, the gold rush is the structure for speculative excitement about business in California or whatever. Uh, but they don't want to tell the story straight through because I think it shows that how direct the benefits of settler colonialism in Alta California were for the Anglo-Americans and how short that history is, right? How like shallow the land is, uh, how shallowly the bodies are buried. Yeah, so in our, our last few minutes together, I did want to bring us to some more contemporary issues. And you mentioned Elon Musk before comparing like the, the Elon Musk University to, I don't know, what, what Stanford or, or Hoover's uh, institution look like. And I can't help but think about Elon Musk even when I'm going through this history of, of California figures because he is this hubristic figure who survives on public funds while creating this infrastructural marketized vision of the United States. But also he seems just to be more transparently a buffoon or just like a, a salesman of this vision rather, rather than someone who's sort of competently organizing it. Uh, so, and I guess that sort of brings us to the last chapter of the book where uh, you put it really well. It's like the emperor is naked. Everybody knows that the, the, the dot-com bubble has collapsed and burst. And yet we're still like sort of living out the fantasies of, of Silicon Valley despite seeing it in all of its idiocy. So do you think that there's some sort of degeneration between the proto-Silicon Valley capitalist class and today? Or do you think this is the end, you know, or is this just uh, this like sort of zombie Silicon Valley will just continue ravaging the world for, uh, for time to come? Uh, I think it's important to have like a, a three-dimensional model of that because like, I think it, it has the structure of a kind of spiral because we see – we do see uh, headed in a direction, I think. Uh, and at the same time, it's very cyclical. And so you think like, oh, this guy's, you know, it used to be that Silicon Valley executives were well-respected, but now they're just like clowns that everybody hates um, or they're seen as like bad guys. And there's some truth to that, but uh, or there's not really much truth to that, to be honest, because like, this is very cyclical. So I'm like Leland Stanford um, who's the original, you know, railroad capitalist who starts Palo Alto as a town is a buffoon. People know he's a buffoon, mm -hmm. you know, other railroad capitalists say he's a buffoon. They basically make him the front man because he is a buffoon. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's a lot of similarities between someone like him and someone like Elon Musk. And we see these figures, you know, pop up a lot, uh, and, you know, and in terms of like the public not liking them anymore, if you go back to like 
2000 or like the late 90s, people hated Bill Gates. Bill Gates, you know, he was the mm-hmm. richest man, richest man in the world at a time when like being rich was the only thing that mattered and everyone still hated him, right? Like he was not considered a cool person to be. Uh, he was, there's a, that movie Antitrust where Tim Robbins basically plays Bill Gates as a serial killer where he is, <laughs> his, his monopolistic tendencies manifest as him like literally murdering young coders for their code. And that's how we thought of Bill Gates at the time. Uh, so I don't well, now I, he's managed to launder his reputation by doing some true. combination of uh, vaccine stuff in Africa and also with his green agricultural development schemes, proletarianizing much of Africa. So now he's, I guess, a good guy again. Yeah, until anyone, I mean, and it turns out the actual Bill Gates is even way creepier than Tim Robbins' serial killer <laughs> Bill Gates, though, and it's buddies with Jeffrey Epstein and, like, who knows what the hell. So I, I think, like, that guy's a real creep. Um, but so, and so that's, like, the idea of a creepy Silicon Valley leader or whatever is not, that's not a, like, tendency towards degeneration necessarily. At the same time, uh, I think we do see the degeneration of the like business model, right? And so if you look at a hundred years ago plus and the role that the Bank of Italy said we were saying plays underlying the cartel, the agricultural cartels, but also the radio age, they're also financing, you know, Disney and the early motion picture industry. Uh, they're financing all sorts of shit. Uh, and they're able to do that. And they're at the same time, they're also able to fight off bank runs. Uh, during the Great Depression, the Bank of Italy performs extraordinarily well. Um, and because they're able to do that and they're able to organize the sort of capitalist class under these associational auspices because they have so much to invest in, right? There's so much future of California to invest in. Uh, the high tech industries, but also California land, right? And like agriculture. And so they're able to get everybody on the same page because the same page is the long-term investment in California and the United States in the 20th century, which is incredibly profitable. And so you can trust the banks to sort of handle things because they're directing money into these industries that are profitable, they're not responsible for the profits themselves. They're responsible for organizing everyone. And so if you look at something like the Giannini Foundation, which still does agricultural resource research out of the UC system, that's something that the Giannini's, which is the Bank of Italy family, founds in order to organize people in the agricultural industry around research collectively. Uh, Fast forward to today and the Silicon Valley bank collapse, and now you have a situation where instead of grounding everyone on the same page, right, instead of making it uh, the associational relationship stronger, you have finance sabotaging them. And mm. that, I think that's because finance is increasingly responsible for generating more of those profits instead mm. of just directing the investments into actually profitable future projects within California that they're responsible for actually generating the profits through finance. And that can only be done by stabbing each other in the back, basically. Hmm. And so- And, and stabbing yeah, each other in the back, few, knowing that the in, in the Hooverian model, that the state will ultimately guarantee uh, the, you know, the treatment for those stab wounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, uh, that ultimately you're gonna be able to 
reorganize along associative lines because that's the only way things ever work, right? So if the, if the system breaks down, then you're going to have to reorganize people somehow. And ultimately, that is not just a job of the federal government, but the job of the federal government is to organize these associational groups of interested parties in order to make the actual decisions. And whether that's just like the bailouts, like we've seen, is one thing, right? Investments and Hoover starts doing this. You know, Hoover starts trying to backstop banks before FDR comes in. Uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and whoever—that's Hoover, right? So, bank bailouts uh, to shore up these associational relations—not a new thing. Um, but also, like convening, you know, conventions of these groups of business leaders to agree on common standards, right? That's how you get zoning, the standard zoning laws um, out of the Hoover administration as well, and out of the Hoover Commerce Department. Um, and so you see the same thing with uh, when Trump got all those tech leaders together under the guidance of Peter Thiel, they get, you know, Bezos is in the room or whatever, Marissa Meyer is in the room, you know, you had all these these big tech leaders in one room with Trump. And in the years following, you see those same companies start to be prime military contractors for the first time, developing these relationships with the federal government um, along those lines. Uh, that associational model is really, I think, what conservative politics is all about, even if they don't know that. Well, I want to ask another question about a contemporary thing that just came up, which was Harlan Crow and Supreme Court Justice have been going to Bohemian Grove together. Mm -hmm. And so this is another thing that's brought up in the group in terms of how the capitalist class associates and, you know, relates to each other. Um, and you had a tweet about this when the news broke that I was very intrigued by. You wrote, oh, man, did not realize Crow was on the Hoover board. Do we know which camp he goes to at Bohemian Grove? Caveman? What is Caveman? Caveman Camp was Herbert Hoover's camp at Bohemian Grove. So Bohemian Grove is this, like, you know, associational structure par excellence for capital in the West at this time. Um, the Bohemian Club is a club in San Francisco that then has this retreat uh, at the Bohemian Grove, which is a, a like piece of land in the country that is very secretive and, you know, where rich people decide things together. Uh, and then even within that camp, there are smaller associational within the Bohemian Grove itself. There are smaller associational structures of of like sub camps within the camp within the whole grove where like smaller groups of dudes and it's dudes uh like build their fellowship or whatever and caveman camp was herbert hoover's camp uh and so you can track the history of like who went to what camp when a little bit i'm still waiting for the the shockley the william shockley archives at stanford to be opened because that dude took notes on everything and he was at Bohemian Grove. And so in terms of like information that we're going to find out in the near future about how that place operates, uh, people should be looking at that for sure. When's that coming out? I think it's in 20, I want to say 2025, but uh, someone okay. should check me on it. So it was too late some... for me to access. <laughs> there might be some juicy information in there. Oh yeah, I think there's there's there is definitely going to be a lot of juicy information in there in the Bohemian Grove sections, especially I think. Right, you you wrote that they like to frolic at Bohemian Grove, but you didn't go into too much detail about what that frolicking might look like. 
Yes. Uh, it involved, I think, being naked a lot of the time, mm. it sounds like. Well, the, the, maybe the best quote we have is from the Nixon tapes. Uh, right. Yeah. Where Nick, Nixon, who gives this like really long in speech that I, I also quote uh, at the at the camp about how great Herbert Hoover is and how he's like an, an oak through the history or whatever, even though those two like did not like each other at all. And then you've got Nixon like back in his office in his, you know, grumbling to the tape recorder being like, Bohemian Grove, that's the faggiest goddamn thing I've ever seen <laughs> yeah. in my life. Like, hey, you know, I don't want I keep me away from that place, et cetera, et cetera. But Hoover wasn't or uh, Nixon wasn't very good at that associational model. Right. He famously like fails to do his job, which is to uh, collect and represent the american capital in this period and they replace him and yeah mm. hoover himself is not a fan of nixon even though they like ostensibly share some similarities including being quakers go ahead Sean. I, I know you have one more question but i i think i i can't help but uh mention the elephant in the room here which is this stunning uh review of your book in the new york times by a guy <laughs> named gary camilla uh if you have not bought palo alto yet uh, buy it if only because it makes uh, the House reviewer at the New York Times really, really mad about <laughs> Marxism. <laughs> yeah, he did me a real favor by uh, <laughs> setting this like real like it's like reactionary liberal opposition to because yes. I think even even conservatives, the conservative publications that have reviewed it have been much more interested in the book itself. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like the Washington Examiner, the San Francisco Examiner, the Spectator, they all have like. I, what I would call pretty thoughtful reviews where they're trying to like get something out of the book. And, you know, they obviously I'm a communist and they're like being a communist is bad, but they, uh, they still get some interesting stuff out of it. Whereas I think the reactionary liberal, uh, position, who is this guy, Gary seems clear that that's what his politics are was just like straight revulsion, just like could not handle it really couldn't, could not bring himself to read it. It seemed mm -hmm. like to me. Um, even though I, I think it's bad form to like attack your critics uh, directly. So I won't get too much into that, but I think some people have had a hard time like reading the book basically. Yeah. Uh, and like taking it, it's on its own terms, but that's been pretty good for me. I think ultimately that review, because it set the opposition to the book on these grounds. It's like, yeah, if you want to be a like idiot liberal, you can <laughs> hate, hate on Malcolm's book, but otherwise you actually have to read it before being <laughs> right. like, this guy sucks. <laughs> so thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. So thanks, Gary. <laughs> well, Sorry yeah, about that, the, the correction you had to issue on your book review, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, part of that review that I think is, uh, you know, approaching something I was thinking about while while reading the book is that you're you're connecting so many things together. And I think maybe there's, uh, and this, you know, this is what writers do. So it's not really fair to critique you in isolation for it, but, um, you know, trying to bring together such disparate elements under in like one sort of unified vision of like, this is capitalism or this is Hoover or whatever. And, but the book does begin and end with the question of, you know, young people in your town committing suicide and, the conclusion of it, there would be this anecdote about William Shockley killing himself and this sort of implication that, you know, this this uh, Palo Alto system or whatever is just so self-perpetuating that it has to die one way or another. And maybe killing itself is one way that that'll happen. But I, I know that that's not like a, a realistic vision of how capitalism will die. Uh, despite it, it makes its own grave diggers, but somebody actually has to dig that grave and like put capitalism in the grave. Yep. So I wonder if, if for you, what you're trying to do with this book is 
not encourage like the death of Palo Alto, but some sort of healing. How do you see the book trying to intervene in daily life in the Bay Area or in California or America in general? Yeah, I use this this term haunting, and I think I don't I don't do it in a religious sense because that's not that's not me. But to think of this uh, of the the persistence of the past in a way that's unsettling. And that's how I want people to to feel haunted by this book in the same way that I felt haunted, you know, growing up Palo Alto. Uh, I want the people of Palo Alto in particular, the settlers of Palo Alto, um, to reckon with that haunting, right? To feel haunting and to feel like that the that unsettledness and that it's something that we need to settle, right? That the, there are accounts due, that the future, this is not the future, that there has to be a change between here and what is to happen in this place um, and that we need to be part of that. And I talk in the end about uh, what returning land would mean and how possible it is. And I think it's very possible and even low hanging. And I think the community is starting to understand that uh, with the Muwak Mo'oloni recognition campaign picking up steam um, uh, I see young people in the community doing events, you know, uh, pushing on for federal recognition of the Moak Maloney tribe. And I think the next step after that is, is clear is going to be some kind of repair and return of land. Um, and when I think about the Shockley section where basically Bill Shockley Jr., who's the one of the founded grandfathers of Silicon Valley, as well as one of the most important American racists of the 20th century, at one point is so distraught about himself and his role in the world, he pulls out a gun, puts a bullet in it, spins the chamber, puts it to his head and pulls the trigger. Uh, and it does, he doesn't kill himself. It, it goes off as a blank and he takes his note and puts it in a vault and seals it up for a long time. He's a crazy guy. Um, but what I wanted to tell with that story is the self-destructiveness of the place, that even though he's a, this eugenicist who has this positive idea of this Palo Alto system, um, that he's still compelled to destroy himself as a result of this haunting that he can't understand. And starting to understand that hauntedness is a way, a way we can transition from that sort of incohate self-destructiveness as well as world destructiveness, which we are a part of, right? To destroy the world is to destroy yourself. Um, and think about politics and the future, uh, in a real sense. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big goal, but I think it's one that, uh, we're doing right. It's happening and I want to be a part of it. I think this book is a great entryway, not just into that history, but as you said, into uh, all of us trying to de-haunt ourselves, unhaunt uh, Palo Alto, unhaunt America, and unhaunt the world. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, I'll play you out with a song by Radiohead called Palo Alto. <laughs> Malcolm, all thanks right. for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Malcolm.
Satisfaction, satisfaction.